Fresh Out of the Oven, it's Cinema Bombs. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bombs is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are concluding our mini-series, Denny for Two, covering every film directed by Denny Villeneuve. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any further films in the series because at this moment, there are none. Wade, how are you doing this evening? Uh, Emmett, it has been a rough evening, to be honest. Mm-hmm. To feel to feel the curtain back. We've been trying for three hours now to record this. We're recording on our phones, so sorry if it doesn't sound as good as normal. But I have doomed so much in the last week that I haven't been able to talk to you about it at all, so I'm very excited to do that. How are you? Sweet. I'm doing well. It has also been exhausting for me, although perhaps not quite as stressful because I just was letting you deal with that. I am doing especially well this evening because tonight we are honored to have a special guest. He's a baseball player, uh, a bartender, a kick-ass blade runner, perhaps best known to our audience for being one of the greatest karaoke performers to ever grace the stage. Well, we won't say the name of the place on the podcast. Please keep it on the DL. (laughs) Keep it on the DL. (laughs) But you know where. It's Ricky Carroll. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say that it's in true Dune 2021 spirit that our podcast was delayed so heavily. Um, (laughs) At at least it was not a full year like the actual production. (laughs) Yeah, truly. Truly. Well, thank you so much for hanging with us and being here to Mm -hmm. talk about this film today and to dive into the whole Dune thing of it. So, and a reminder to our listeners, uh, Bumtober is happening on our Instagram at Cinema Bums right now, and Halloween is the last day to vote on what our first series of 2022 will be. So, go vote. Take something short and sweet. Dive into it. Today, we're talking Let's, about Dune, mm-hmm. and we're going to go through all of the different iterations of Dune leading up to the 2021 film and talk about our experiences with it. Starting with the Dune novel, originally written in 1965 by Frank Herbert. Emmett, can you summarize as succinctly as possible the premise of Dune and as much as it relates to this movie specifically? It is an ecological study of a fictional planet in the science fiction universe. Ooh. Interwoven with what at first appears to be a classic hero's journey myth but then turns out many different shades of subversion of that. That's what I would say, that the original is. Okay. It's Um, also the beginning of postmodernism in literature, maybe. Can you do a little bit of the actual story? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Young boy, Paul Atreides, heir to the dukedom of his father, Leto Atreides. They've just been given control by the emperor of the universe, of this planet called Dune or Arrakis, on which is produced spice, the most precious substance in the entire universe. It's about a battle between the Atreides house, which is Paul's house, and the evil Harkonnen house, who are in competition and like the war and the lengths that they go to to battle over Dune. Yes, so this original novel, published in August 1965 by Frank Herbert, it was originally released in two halves, which I think is interesting because this new movie is split into two halves. And the book itself is, when you read it today, it's split into three sections. Mm-hmm. They're called books one through three. They're not equal in length. They get successively shorter. But it was originally published with book one as its own standalone, and then book two and three as their own half. And then it was all combined into the novel which is now the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Wow. He went on to write six more novels before he died in 1986. And his son, Brian Herbert, along with the sci-fi writer Kevin J. Anderson, who's kind of a legendary, like, pulpy science fiction writer, they together have written 16 more novels. Jeez. To date. (laughs) There are more coming out. So I'll start with Ricky. Like, have you read the novel, the first one, more of them? I have read the original Dune, or all three books in the first novel. And then of the of the original six-book series that Frank Herbert wrote himself, 
the original writer. I, I've read the first three. So that would be Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. Um, and it gets progressively weirder. I have been super excited for this movie. I feel like Dune is to science fiction as, like, Lord of the Rings is to the fantasy, the high medieval fantasy genre. Um, it, it kind of mm. is the thing that'll be that all further adaptations of the genre will be like compared to. And, and while a few attempts have been made to bring this media into a, like a film adaptation or miniseries in the sci-fi case, there hasn't been that successful one, such as like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. So as someone who was really, really blown away by a couple of Denny Villeneuve sci-fi uh, movies. I, I was so excited to see this being developed and then to hear the cast. It blew my mind, so I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Did you read them recently, or did you, like, grow up knowing what you Didn't grow up with them specifically. My brother went to the – joined the Navy when I, um, I was about 13 or 14, and he came back three years later, and he just gave me this book, and he said – this is my new favorite thing on the planet. Read it. And uh-huh. so I, I did. I guess I was about 18 or so when I actually started it. Not to be corny, but Dune at times for taking place on a desert planet uh, where water is the an absolute scarcity. It can be a little dry at times. Um, mm-hmm. So the audio mm-hmm. book, the audio book was an absolute lightsaber for me continuing to like get into it. Emmett, what about you? What's your Dune journey? I think I first listened to it um, as a kid. Like, I listened to the audiobook when I was, like, 12 and was Mm -hmm. just like, what is this? And couldn't really get into it. And my friend, like, my best friend growing up, Andrew, was, like, way into it and loved them and was like, oh, these are so cool. And I was always like, I just, like, can't wrap my mind around them. And then my senior year of college, one of my good friends and friend of the pod, Beth Fletcher, was taking a single, like, an independent study course on Dune at school. And she invited me to just, like, sit in on some of the classes with her because it was super interesting. And she thought it would be fun to have another voice in the room to, like, bounce ideas off of. I reread it then and was like, oh, whoa, this is so cool. And I was also had the benefit of reading it at the time, like structuredly with a teacher kind of like walking us through it and presenting a bunch of really interesting supplemental materials alongside it. So I got really into like some of the critical theory around it as well and like stuff from like the 60s and 70s and like ideas that were going into it. And I have since since then like knew that I wanted to read all of them started way that first winter that we lived in Atlanta together is when I read the second and third. And then it was during the pandemic that I read the fourth, fifth and sixth, like kind of all in a row. And I've read all of the original Frank Herbert ones. As Rake says, they do get weirder and they just keep getting weirder. Actually, what he was trying to do is write an original trilogy, which is the first three books that they have, and then write another trilogy, but that trilogy is connected by the fourth book. So it's actually an incomplete series Uh... of seven that's missing one book. And that was like the jumping off point for where Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson started writing their books. I think they wrote two more to finish up the one that Frank Herbert was going to write. But some people have said that they think it goes in a very different direction than from where the end of the sixth book indicates the seventh was supposed to. Mm. Um, And about like what the ultimate evil was supposed to be. But it's really weird because in the last three books, there's like this ultimate threat and this ultimate evil thing that keeps getting hinted at, but no one ever gets a clear idea of what it is, um, which is kind of cool. And it, maybe maybe Frank didn't really know what it was yet, and he was working towards it as he died. So have you read any of those? Any of I've those read Kevin none Jay of the supplemental, supplemental Dune books by other people. Okay. There's also, interestingly, the Dune Encyclopedia, which was made by a bunch of sci-fi writers at the time, contemporaries like in the 1980s in the middle of him of Frank Herbert writing the original series a bunch of other authors wrote this encyclopedia that documents a bunch of other stuff so it's like kind of this crazy work of fan fiction but it's canon fan fiction (laughs) except when the books directly contradict it (laughs) Um, which is pretty dope yeah Uh, Wade how about you you just finished the first one right yeah so listeners 
to our Denny for Two series will know that like three months ago I read 50 pages of Dune and then didn't read anymore <laughs> for the entire 10 weeks we checked in on it. This last week I was moving mm-hmm. and I really wanted to read Dune, but I did not have a lot of time, you know, uh, a lot of time that I could be reading. I was spending a lot of time packing, moving boxes, 19 hours in the car. Uh-huh. So I Spent it listening to 21 hours of the Dune audiobook. Nice. Wow. Nice. Which I'm glad both of you guys mentioned because it is really good. It's, although there are some weird things about it, but it's from 2007, narrated predominantly by Simon Vance and unabridged. I it really helped me through it. It gave me like something cool to focus on throughout this time. Nice. Absolutely. Um, like I say this as someone who doesn't read fiction as much as I would really like to. Like, it's very readable today. It isn't sort of the Tolkien thing of there being crazy explanations. It's, like, mostly dialogue and action, at least in, you know, the original Dune. I can't speak. I haven't read any of the sequels. I find it uh, very interesting with the vocabulary of Dune that when, like, you come across a word that you're not really sure about, in my experience, nine times out of a ten, it was just a word that Frank Herbert had made up himself. And yeah. it was just a part of the universe. So I every time I'm like, oh, I, I feel like I should understand this word. But it's like, nope, it, he might explain it in a page or two, or you might not get it. Just check the glossary. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I will say well, I was helped uh, massively, like having seen the trailers and knowing the actors playing the characters, because it was like really easy for me to imagine these actors playing the characters and keep track of them that way. Mm-hmm. I think... Without it, it would have definitely been harder to get into at the beginning. Because there's a ton of exposition. It was um, very hard for me to keep Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho separate until, like, the third book. Yeah, they're kind of the same character, too. Yeah, especially in the movie. One of them's cool and one of them is folksy. But, yeah, in the movie, they are more, even more the same character. Cool. Anything else you want to say about the book before we start talking about the adaptation? Read it. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say that it really is worth it. It is both more and less than you think it is. Mm-hmm. And that's it. My father told me when he was in, I think, 11th grade, it was just like a regular English class, um, and they were doing a fiction project, and the, the class was given the option between two fiction books to read, and one of them was Dune, and he was like, no, that's stupid. And the other one was The Two Towers. And I was Whoa. thinking to myself, like, the choices I got in high school were never that cool or never, like, that <laughs> culture-defining. He he never ended up reading Dune, and I feel bad for him. Wow. <laughs> the last thing I'll say about the book is there are some twists in the book. If you have watched this movie, those things have not been spoiled for you. I didn't necessarily think it was that kind of a book. And then it got to and I was, like, gasping in the U-Haul at some of the revelations. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the first attempt to adapt it was in 1976, started in 1974 when a French company got the rights and they hired legendary weirdo director Alejandro Jodorowsky to direct it. Yes, so he's a a famous director of El Topo and The Holy Mountain for like 70s art, 60s and 70s art films with like a lot of religious and sacrilegious imagery in them. He is like a total megalomaniac and basically <laughs> thought that it that he was like, I mean, he has a line in one of the movies that he was directing and playing the main character in where he says, I am God. So that's about where he's at. Yeah, so he, he had written the script, he had cast it, it was in pre-production. Son was playing Paul, which is interesting, <laughs> with what you just said there, I mean, yeah. Um, Orson Welles as the Baron, Salvador Dali as the Emperor, and Mick Jagger as Fade. They were going to hire all this special chef for Orson Welles, and like that was the agreement for him to come on and yeah. play the Baron. I'm not going to get all the way into it. There's all yeah. this stuff with Dali where Dali was like, I want a million dollars an hour, and then he like changed it to where they could film all his stuff in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so he would still do it. Damn. And he had Pink Floyd doing Pink the music, yeah. which was awesome. But yeah, it fell apart in 1976 when Jodorowsky wouldn't budge on making his version 10 hours long. 
and he had already spent two million of the nine million budget just on like pre-production. So then they just called it quits. That must have been such an out there idea, also for nineteen plus seventy four. You said, and and less than decade old book with sci-fi in the seventies that hadn't really been a thing too much. So I can understand that with all the out there kind of expectations the director and producer has set for it, then uh, it's going to fall apart. I don't think that was ever really going to see the light of day. Yeah. The silver linings on that, I guess, is firstly that his art team that he assembled himself went in full to go and make 1979's Alien, which is like maybe a hint of some of the direction they could have gone with the art. Um, and there is a documentary Joe Doraski's doing that came out in 2013 that shows like what his vision was for it. Ooh, I need to I need to watch that. Then in '76, this producer Dino De Laurentiis gets the right. Uh, he hires Ridley Scott to direct it. Ridley also wants to split it into two movies, and then basically just says like it's taking too long, and he leaves to make Blade Runner. Oh, but the the thing about that is, too, that when they got the rights, they hired Frank Herbert to write his own screenplay, which was apparently three hours long. Um, of course. But I wonder if that will ever get published or, like, where that is today, because as far as I know, nothing has happened with it. So David Lynch wrote and directed his own when that fell apart? Yeah, so that falls apart, and the producer hires David Lynch, who we now know for Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive and a bunch of other iconic weirdo stuff. But this was before all of that. He had made two films. He made Eraserhead, and then he made The Elephant Man, which, like, swept the Oscars. He basically had, like, a blank check to go and do what he wanted, and they offered him Dune, and he turned down directing Return of the Jedi to go and direct Dune. Wow. And he made this this movie, which does exist and is now out there. It had a $40 million budget. It had music by Toto of Africa fame. It has Kyle McLaughlin in his first on-screen role ever as Paul. Patrick Stewart as Gurney. Sean Young from Blade Runner as Chani. And Sting as Fade. The thing of this is that Lynch wrote and filmed a three-hour version. And then when he delivered it to the studio, he got locked out of the editor's room. And they cut it down to two hours and 15 minutes. And he, like, disowned it. So a lot of versions, when you watch it today, don't even have his name on it. He, he's still so heartbroken about it, even even now. He said that he had no interest in seeing the new one. It's just such a sore memory for him. And I can't mm. really blame the guy for that much heart and soul into something. And, and then you're, you're just axed at the very end because they just want to put it out there. I mean, I get it. That it's fallen apart so many times before that... They can't let it happen again, but, um, yeah, you can't help but feel for him. Have either of you seen this version, this movie? I've seen one of the cuts of it. I can't remember which cut at this moment, because it is like Blade Runner in that it has multiple different editions that you can watch that are of varying lengths and comprehensibility. Whatever version they have on HBO right now is the version I watched about a week ago or two weeks ago. And that was the first time, and I was very pleasantly surprised for how much I've heard about it. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed it. I mean, there was a lot of questionable choices, but they, 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 they committed to it. Like the, the internal monologue bits, I, I got, I really kind of like that in a, in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, I also watched it. So I tried to watch it after finishing the book before watching the mm. Denny version and just couldn't get through it. Then after watching the Demi version, I went back and started from the beginning and watched it all. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's great, but it's actually kind of shocking how similar it is to the Demi version. Yeah, yeah. Like, in terms of the scenes that they keep and, like, the flow, even, like, the dialogue they keep from the book, like, they are very similar. There are parts of the Lynch version that I think are better, honestly. Um, I'll be specific mm. with the the very beginning uh, where Gaius, uh, the Reverend Mother, has Paul put his hand in the box. I think David Lynch's is better because it visualizes so much better with the flesh falling off the hand. And it's like the most unbearable hand of uh, uh, pain. Paul at that moment thinks he's lost his hand. <laughs> like, it's crazy. <laughs> but in, in, the, in the newer version, it's you don't know what's going on inside the box. It's still a very painful experience. But um, Timothy kind of grunting and, and squealing. and <laughs> Yeah. The thing that strikes me most about the Lynch version 
is that it's a good example that just because you explain things doesn't always mean they make sense. Like, Mm -hmm. it feels like in the Lynch version, probably the studio felt like nobody was going to understand it. Everything that people say is, like, just explaining how they're feeling or explaining, like, literally the plot of what's going on as you watch it. And it's like, that actually doesn't necessarily make it more clear. Right. As opposed to the Jenny version, which I think kind of explains nothing at all on the opposite spectrum. Right. They are basically diametrically opposed in the show, don't tell versus tell and kind of and show, I guess. Yeah. But I do think what the Lynch version is kind of missing is like some sort of mood or cohesion. Absolutely. Like it is most of the same scenes from the Denny movie and a lot of the same scenes from the entire book, but it's just sort of like a collection of scenes. Like it doesn't feel connected in that way. And maybe it would if we were watching the three-hour version, you know? Maybe. Maybe. I kind of like having that uh, that idea that it could have maybe been better. <laughs> All right. Well, keep um, walking us through the, through the history, Wade. So then in 2000, there's a Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, which is five hours long, directed by John Harrison, with Alec Newman in his Paul and William Hurt as the Duke Leto. That was really popular. I think the most watched program on sci-fi at the time. And then they made a sequel to it in 2003 called Children of Dune, which adapted the second and third books in the series. I haven't seen either of those. Have either of you seen Dune or Children of Dune? I personally have not. I am very interested in finding out where I can watch them. Put that in my back pocket for a rainy day. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, But I would love to see what Children of Dune would look like. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine them being very good on a TV budget, but I do yeah. see how the book would be good as a TV series. Yeah. As opposed to a movie. Well, then that brings us to the current one that we're talking about. It does. It brings us to Denny's movie, which began in November 2016, when Denny had just released Arrival and just finished filming Blade Runner 2049. And Arrival was getting all those rave reviews and Oscar buzz. The company Legendary Entertainment got the film rights to Dune, and they asked Denny if he wanted to direct it. He had read the book in middle school, and this had apparently has always been his dream project. This is like the thing that when anyone ever was like, if you could direct anything, what would you do? He would like always say Dune. And even back to when he was filming Incendies in the country of Jordan a decade before, he said that he was like, scouting the locations there and imagining his dune filming wow. there, which he then did. Oh, um, that guy. It was his decision to split it into two movies. He wrote the script himself alongside Eric Roth, uh, who's like a veteran screenwriter, worked on Forrest Gump, the most recent Star is Born, and John Spates, who did Prometheus and Doctor Strange, like more modern genre stuff. The three of them all wrote the draft together, and it is the first English-language film that Denny has gotten a writing also think I read that this is the first movie that he produced, that he directed. Oh, that's interesting. That is probably true. I think that his wife produces some of his stuff along with him, too. He cast Timothy first before he cast anyone else, which is because he had seen him in Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. like, during that Oscar run. And apparently Timothy had previously auditioned to be the kid in Prisoners and had not Whoa. gotten it, which is funny. But he said, Denny said that his goals with this movie were to bring out Paul's arc throughout the first half of the movie, mm-hmm. to focus on the women of the book and really bring them to the forefront, mm-hmm. and to make it his, like, poppiest, most accessible film that he personally mm-hmm. has made. So how do we think he did on accomplishing those? It's interesting that you say that about bringing out Paul's art, because when I think about Dune, I think of it as being Paul's art. But in the beginning of the first book, it is really like a jumble of a bunch of different POVs. And eventually you realize Paul is going to be the the protagonist. He did a good job with that. The first third, the book one of Dune, has like 30 chapters. Paul is probably in like five. Yeah, it seems a lot more like Jessica's story in the beginning, almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's really uh, an important point and goes with what you said Denny was trying to do with the women's arc in the in the movie. Jessica is 
as, as important as Paul throughout the first book, she mm-hmm. kind of has a moment of realization towards the end. I don't know how much we're allowed to talk about the second half, but um, like realizing that her son is becoming something else and she has to put herself mm-hmm. on the back burner a little bit and, and, and focus on her own journey like a, alongside her son and not have to lead her her son, who was supposed to be 15 in the book. <laughs> I, I guess they don't really give him an age in the movie. I think it is very funny how Rebecca Ferguson is only what, like, like I think she's like 12 years older than Timothy Chalamet. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's also an awkward, like, getting naked with your mom scene in the movie. <laughs> I just wanted to mention. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. I did find it out to me. It seemed awkward on the half of Rebecca Ferguson, but, like, Timothy mm-hmm. Chalamet at that point is, like, Getting into like the oh I have to be this other person now I'm 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 following a path now and and he like doesn't seem to think twice about it in the movie yeah I also feel like it is poppier than 2049 yeah um, it feels like that it feels closer to a Star Wars than 2049 does mm-hmm. but still significantly more austere. And, like, harder to get into. I don't know if I would call it accessible. I would call it more accessible. But mm-hmm. I, yeah. I do wish I had the perspective of someone who hadn't read the book. I did not get a chance to talk to anyone about this movie that hadn't seen the book. I know it's doing really well box office numbers, and I can't imagine, especially in America, that many, many of those people are readers or audiobook listeners, <laughs> such as ourselves. We are so fine and mighty. Um <laughs> <laughs> But I, 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 there's a lot. There's a lot. I, I feel like I'm not sure that I would quite understand. So I, it would be cool to have a pers- the perspective of someone who hadn't read the book. Yeah, I feel like the movie does a good job of like giving you what you need to know without explaining it, which is like we were talking about with there being like so little dialogue. Like they never even say the word mentat in the movie. Oh yeah. Uh, they don't explain what that is at all. But there's just that like shot of Thufir the first time you meet him where they like ask him some logic question and he like puts his head puts his eyes back into his brain and like calculates something like a computer and then says it yeah. and then you're like okay that's what that guy does yeah, you know? yeah. but if someone was like what's the mentat and who is each house's mentat and what's their significance you'd have no yeah. idea absolutely that goes along the lines of like you know showing you what you need to know giving you a glimpse into, I guess, the men's head. If you pay close attention, you can absolutely tell that they are, you know, something a little more than the normal human and all. It's not extremely necessary to understanding the plot, so you don't delve into it. Yeah. So this was filmed March to July 2019, supposed to be released October 2020, but pushed back an entire year. Came out September 15th, 2021, internationally, and just a couple days ago, October 21st in the United States. And it was released by Warner Brothers in theaters in IMAX and on HBO Max with a $165 million budget, so less than Blade Runner's 185 And it has so far made 220 internationally. So it did really good overseas. Had a pretty decent opening weekend here in America, $40 million, especially considering it was on HBO Max and that it runs two hours and 35 minutes. They've... Yeah. So far, Green lit an HBO Max series called Dune the Sisterhood, which Jenny has said he's going to direct the pilot of. And they have said they will greenlight a sequel if this movie does well. They have still not officially said we are getting a sequel. The movie says Dune Part 1 at the opening. So I guess we're all on pins and needles to see if we'll get Dune Part 2. Denny has also said that if he gets the chance, he would like to do a trilogy with Dune Part 3 adapting the Dune Messiah book. I love that idea. When I first read Dune Messiah, I was blown away. I really, really liked it. I, I thought it was like the perfect continuation of the story that was left off because the, the original book kind of ends in a hurry. The falling action of the book is very short. Oh, yeah. Minutes. It just stops. It just There's stops. like a couple pages. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they're still in the room where the stuff goes down when the, when the final pages come. And, uh, I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, I really like the idea of Dune Messiah being adapted. Even if none of the other ones get adapted, I would definitely be happy with just these three. And I think Messiah can be done in one movie. It's a much shorter book. Yeah, and I feel like The Sisterhood sounds like it would be a miniseries that would take up where the 
maybe the fourth, but probably the fifth and the sixth books pick up. Cause Are we books, thinking there's... that's about the Benny Gesserit when this says the it Sisterhood? Is absolutely. Oh. That is the Sisterhood they're talking about. And the Benny Gesserit are a huge part. I mean, the main characters of the fifth and sixth books are Benny Gesserit. Makes it a little bit more palatable that they aren't quite fleshed out in this movie, that they're getting their own thing dedicated to them. Yeah. Well, also, like, there's a lot of things with the Bene Gesserit where if you just, like, kind of drop it into conversation, they're going to sound, like, super villainous and creepy. <laughs> and they kind of are. They're also kind of the only force for good in the entire universe, too. So yeah, it's hard to get with. And, like, that's some stuff that neither of y'all have even really gotten far enough to no. to comprehend. You mean the all-female political witches who have been doing decades of eugenics have bad press? <laughs> uh, you're telling me, Emmett? Yeah, and they're also Jedi. True, they yeah. are the inspiration for Jedi. They really are, yeah. Man, that's uh, something that I, I didn't say when I was talking about the book, but it is, like, wild how much of Star Wars, how much of Game of Thrones, even stuff like Black Panther or Watchmen were a rival like, how much this book is the template for big things that have come after. Yeah, right? I knew, like, Luke was kind of, like, young hero on a desert planet, kind of similar to Paul. But, like, mm-hmm. the amount to which book one, book two, and book three in the original Dune novel are Star Wars, Empire, Return of the Jedi is, like, yeah. insane. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there is even a very similar twist, which I, I want to talk about later, but I won't spoil here. But yeah, like down to the letter, it's crazy how much this has expired, so much other stuff. And it's it's sort of frustrating because you worry that when people are experiencing Dune for the first time, either through the movie or the book, if you don't think about the timetable, like it just seems like kind of stereo, or what are they called? Um, you know, stereotypes for sci-fi. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. But he invented all of those. They, they, the, the things that followed got the inspiration, got the template from this series. It just wasn't able to be adapted into the um, film media for so long. So, all right, here it comes the big question, Rick. Got to put it to you. Dune, twenty twenty one, flop or bop? There, there, there are moments where I, as I knew, I, I knew it would be like this. I would just come out and say it. Bop for me, absolute bop. I, I had to think about it, and I do need to see it in theaters. I don't think HBO Max gave me the the proper viewing satisfaction that I would get because all oh, the thing I think I'm most in love with about this movie is the is the sound design. I could go oh, all day yeah. about the sound design for this movie, and I got to experience an IMAX. But yeah, bop. Uh, I mean, as as someone who's looked forward to this for so long, I was bound. My my expectations were were too high, and I knew that already. Yeah. Uh, my brother my brother told me. We've talked about the development of this movie for a while, and he, he he recreated the litany against fear. He said, I must not hype. Hype is the mind killer. Hype is the little death. <laughs> and that's what I did. <laughs> Bob, um, I can't wait to see it again, and I'm excited for the direction they're going to take the rest of this. And- Hell yeah, Wade. Bob for Bob. Bob for me, too. I really liked it. You know, it's been a really long time since I've had this experience of, like, picturing a movie in my head from the book and then, like, seeing it and comparing it, which mm-hmm. is honestly not an experience that I loved. <laughs> but, yeah. but I did really like it, and it totally made sense to me as, like, Denny Villeneuve's dude. It absolutely made sense that these are the things he would love about the book. Like, this is what he would yeah. bring to the forefront, having seen his other stuff. I don't think it's necessarily, like, the definitive... Like, I think there can be other adaptations in the future. There are still Mm -hmm. things that have not been mined in the book. Um, Yeah. But I think in terms of just, like, giving it such a mood and really great casting, sound, and costume design... Yeah, great costume design. For Rebecca Ferguson in particular, Mm -hmm. I, I loved it. I watched it in IMAX. It was awesome on the big screen and with the big sound. It's not filmed entirely in IMAX, which I thought it was. So for me, I'll just say that, like, quickly, it was, like, a little distracting. Like, the aspect ratio just, like, changed from shot to shot. Oh, that's weird. Um, 
normally they either film the entire movie in IMAX or you'll get like a big action scene that's entirely in IMAX and then the rest of the movie is in the other aspect ratio. But this, it was like just like varied from shot to shot the whole movie. So that was like a little distracting for me. I do really want to watch it a second time because I don't know if this was your guys' experience. Like the last hour of the movie, I was like, this is where they're going to cut it. This is where they're going to cut it. This is where they're going to cut it. To that point, I love where they cut it. I gotta say, I did have the same experience because I refused to check how far along I was on the on the yeah. streaming service. But um, mm. I liked where they cut it. I liked it. I think where they cut it is the best place for the second. Like they have gotten through a lot of the stuff that would be weird at the beginning of the second movie. Right. I definitely think that. Emmett, flop or bop? I think it's a bop. I think it is a really gorgeous adaptation on the scale of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. And I think that if, God willing, we get the sequel and the um, June Messiah thing, I think that those three movies, if he's able to like give, like, do his whole idea with them, will like stand as a trilogy, as like a science fiction trilogy as important in film as uh, Lord of the Rings was like 20 years ago. I think it's awesome. I think it is very much the first film, which I mean, like, it has all of those first film problems of series of, like, being kind of slow and, like, all about the exposition. But I think he does it in a way that is beautiful and is not boring. It's just, like, easing you into it. I agree that the casting is incredible. The costumes are beautiful. I think the way it looks is great. Unfortunately, the theater I saw it in, the brightness was just down on the screen, but I watched the first, I like went back and watched the first 20 minutes again uh, mm-hmm. on my computer and it looked really good. So I think that may have just been a theater issue, not like not that the movie overall was too dark. He did such a great job compared to Lynch, really. I felt like I was in Dune. I felt like I was on Arrakis. It, 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 the atmosphere that he created yeah. was like tangible. I loved it. And then, you know, Zimmer put in an all-time performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zimmer was a big fan of the books as well. And um, he turned, he always works with, you know how he always works with Christopher Nolan. And he turned down a Tenet movie to do Dune with uh, Villeneuve, which I think is very cool. And I think it shows how much he, he cared about the product. Yeah, the score goes so hard. It's just like bagpipes and a woman yelling turns up to 11. <laughs> the whole oh. I, another fun fact is that I'm not sure. It, you know, 2021, anything you read on the internet can be true or false, but you just pre- present it as fact and be confident. But I, I read that uh, the man in the bagpipes when they arrive on Arrakis in front of the Atreides brigade is Hans Zimmer in, with the bagpipes. Whoa. <laughs> oh, whoa. I thought all of those scenes, like, had a stateliness and, like, a visual formality to them that I feel like a lot of Star Wars scenes where they're trying to impress you with the size and the formality of the thing don't achieve because it's, like, not in the movement of the camera, if that makes sense. That is such a good mm-hmm. point. In, what is it, uh, Force Awakens, when they show the, the, the First Order on Starkiller mm-hmm. Base or whatever, they're like, oh, numbers, man yelling, and you're like, oh, that's impressive. But then yeah. this, it's like, you, you just feel it. You, 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 you get the point. <laughs> like, yeah. One of my yeah. favorite scenes in the movie is, is it was, it's Seleucus Secundus, right? The, um, mm-hmm. um, start a car homeworld with the throat mm-hmm. singing and the, the upside down crucified bodies and the blood. Yeah. Oh, just the imposing of that evil, evil, like, regime. That's pretty nuts. To that point, I mean, I was really struck by, like, how unbusy the frame is a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, looks almost like illustrations in like a D&D book or like mm-hmm. a fantasy map at the beginning of a book like yeah it all seems so purposefully placed but like you really get a sense of where everything is in relation to everything else yeah like it doesn't feel like they're trying to impress you by cramming in details in every inch of the frame yeah I noticed especially in like the beginning when they're flying over the when they're flying over Arakeen and it's like mm-hmm. this miniatures and it's like very yeah. clearly miniatures, but it like looks beautiful. I thought that was cool. And to the other point too, I think that there is like a surprising amount of like gross horror in this movie. 
thinking especially about like the spider dog whose legs are all human hands. Oh, horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. All I yeah. have to tell you is read read through book five of the Frank Herbert stuff, and you know, that'll start to make sense. I hate Or do a quick Google that, search okay. on the Benny Tlalax if you want to get real grossed out. Look up the axolotl tanks. I think Stellan Skarsgård was fantastic, uh, disgusting, mm. disgusting. Beast Raban, what, what's his name, uh, Batista, was mm-hmm. really imposing but sickly, and I think that does a really good job of staying true to the, like how the Harkonnens are supposed to look. The horror aspect of the, the gross parts was done really well. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree I with thought- you about Skarsgård, because so much of the book is spent on the bad guys. They're like probably eight chapters across the whole book where it's just the bad guys on their home planet like saying what the plan is. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's like he captured like being compelling while also being grotesque and horrible. I thought it was really cool how he's got those dispensers that they always talk about in the books, but that just made him look like he was on super tall legs because of the way he wears his dress. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was really dope. When he's just floating there along and, like, everyone's walking next to him and he's, like, 20 feet tall. <laughs> or when he's up on the ceiling after uh, Leto attempts to kill him. Oh, my God. That stuck with me, too. That part is horrible. Something I wanted to ask both of you, I definitely mm-hmm. read this, like, imagining the actors. But uh-huh. did these actors match your visions for these characters or maybe any in particular to really match what you imagined? For me, definitely the one that stands out the most as being different from my imagination was Duncan Idaho and Jason Momoa. First off, Jason Momoa looks very strange with nothing on his face in terms of hair. Um, he was great. I, it took a minute for me to get get my imaginated Duncan Idaho character to match up with this Momoa character. The rest mm-hmm. are pretty on par. Chalamet is pretty classic. Rebecca Ferguson does a really good job of capturing how I imagine Lady Jessica is just like freaking out with the the, the consequences of her love, of her, her love to her Duke. Yeah, I would say that the, the, the cast was amazing and it's star-studded. I, I think Momoa is really the only one that sticks in my mind as, as something that I completely imagine differently. I imagine Gurney Halleck as being uglier and weirder and funnier. I uh, wish they would have let is, him sing. He sings so much in the book. He sings so much in the book. That was just he'll never sure. he'll never shut up in the book. So I hope we give him some singing to do in the next one. Roland had like two lines of poetry. Just hand the man a ballad set for Christ's sake. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How about you? Rick? Well, I definitely was imagining them, but I want to say that I was really impressed with Javier Bardem as Dilgar. Oh yeah. I thought that he captured like the dangerous, charming, intriguing energy of that character so well. So well. I, I was really glad they included the scene where he comes to the house before it all goes down. That was um, so, so good. The Lynch movie cuts that, and I think like I think that is also maybe Chalamet's best scene, and he's sort of mm. like publicly opposing his dad. I weirdly think that scene and when he's watching the projectors are his best scenes. I think he's huh. very convincing watching those projectors. Well... Who would you say, Rick, is your MVP other than the protagonist? Just the tiniest bit uh, disappointed that he got mentioned right there at the end. The whole I was thinking about this while watching, but <laughs> Javier Bardem was my favorite by far. Um, mm-hmm. Honorable mentions for me go out to uh, Duke Leto, uh, Oscar Isaac, who I think is the most handsome man in Hollywood right now. Mm. Um, and then uh, who is my other? Doesn't matter. Javier Bardem just killed it. The, the scene where he spits and he gives water as a gift, that was excellent. And then the nature of the, um, what's the name of that of that ritual they do at the end? The uh, Yeah. And he he played it, he played it so cool. And um, I was just convinced. I don't think they could have picked a better person for Stilgar. I don't think I had a precise kind of image of Stilgar in my head. Maybe maybe he was more like gray and bearded, but now I will never be able to imagine it otherwise that he, he changed my perception of that. But yeah, Stilgar, MVP for me for sure. And that's super cool too because Stilgar is such a big part of the next two books as well. So if they do keep going, he'll 
he'll be there. Wade, MVP? Man, there are so many, so many good performances in this movie. And I do want to talk about Oscar Isaac, who's my favorite actor. But I have to give MVP to Jason Momoa in Sunken Idaho. Mm. I feel like Jason Momoa arrived in this movie. Like, mm. it was a movie star performance for me that I have never seen him give before. I mean, I've seen Aquaman where he's the lead. I've seen him in other stuff. But I couldn't have necessarily told you what makes him different from The Rock or Chris Hemsworth or mm-hmm. Dave Bautista or Chris Pratt. You know, like, what is right. what Momoa brings to it? And he just, like, shines so much in this role. I think he's one of the best parts of the movie. I think it's such a good use of him. And I think, like, his relationship with Paul is, like, the most pure thing in the movie. Mm-hmm. And when I think about Denny saying that he wants to make this movie poppy and accessible, like, that to me is peppering Duncan in there and leading up sort of like the big hero climax being his, like, locking the door, mm-hmm. killing all the Sardaukar, and then dying moment, which is so good. That's yeah. that's the moment that I want to rewatch the most. So, yeah, I was blown yeah. away by Momoa in this. Absolutely. My most favorite change from the Lynch to this version was, I don't know if it was Lynch's idea at all, but Duncan Idaho was killed like a chump in his version. He he basically got shot, right? Like through his shield. And they referenced mm -hmm. that in a Villanueva version, the, uh, his death in, um, Lynch's because he, somebody shoots at him and he knocks Uh, it, like gets stuck in his shield and he knocks (laughs) it away with his blade. I thought was awesome. Emmett, who's your MVP? I am going to have to go with, um, Sharon Duncan Brewster as Dr. Liet Kine. Ooh. Um, I think that she was incredible in a role that is, like, very pivotal in the book, but, mm-hmm. like, is not necessarily immediately suggests itself to be, like, a very fun role to play. You She's know? my favorite character in the book. Yeah, right? I love her in the book and in this movie, too. But. And this is, like, one of the – I think this is, like, the only character that they decided to do this with, but it is a change of gender from the book. Uh, Dr. Kimes, I, I believe, is a man in the book. She was, like, very good in every scene, I feel like. The movie was definitely better for just having her as the actress. No matter the gender, just that person in that role was perfect. Um, yeah. Um, the Kimes' death in the book is, is, like, a really emotional and slow part. Um, mm-hmm. where he dreams of his father and, and the transformation of Arrakis into a green homeworld. And oh, yeah. It's in, it, instrumental for the rest of the series and, and what what happens, but um, not necessary oh, for the movie. That is and a I, slow part. That exactly. is a part of the book to Could, Couldn't put that in the book. I, I, I like what they did with it in this movie, The Calling of the Worm. That was, that was very well done. Um, they don't mention in the movie, so far at least, that she is Zendaya's mother. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I forgot that Chani is kind of his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, well, can we do a brief little spoiler section? Yes. Uh, that maybe people who have just watched this movie can fast forward a couple minutes. But mm-hmm. speaking of mothers, I wanted to talk about specifically, I was, like, shocked that they left out the twist that Lady Jessica is the Baron's daughter. Yeah. I think we will get that in the next movie. They're definitely not going to ignore it, for sure. They're not going to ignore it, because it is crucially important to, like, why Alia is the way she is, why Paul is the way he is, and why their kids go on to do the things that they do. Was that a a revelation made in in this part of the book that they covered? Yeah, it's in, it's the very last scene of book one, which is the scene where it's just Paul and Jessica, they're, like, hopeless in the desert after they've crashed. He does the same thing in the book where he talks about, like, her turning him into a freak. And then he has his first exposure to Spice. Uh, He sees that she's pregnant, and he sees that she is the daughter of the Baron. Which is something that even she didn't know, right? Yeah, and they also don't set up in the movie that she doesn't know who her parents are, which is a big part of the book. Oh, right. That is something that shocked me when I was reading the book, that twist. Also, that no one had ever told me that even Luke, I am your father, is something that was created from D. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, the uh, really, it's the the evil emperor is your grandfather that's cribbed from Dune. <laughs> it's the Bene Gesserit never told you what happened to your father. <laughs> no. It's not a story of the Bene Gesserit, the <laughs> 
pathways that that Dune created for the sci-fi genre is just like you will go and you will discover more and more as you like connect the dots between your favorite sort of cultural staples of the genre. It's undeniable how much influence that Dune had on uh, everything that I love. Yeah. I, I sci-fi is my biggest thing, and I, I can't believe it took me so long to get into the books, and I'm all the better for it. Um, anything else to bring up in the spoiler section before we go to final thoughts? I was also kind of surprised they didn't include Fade since he's yeah. a big part of the second half of the novel. It feels and smart he, because he, if they knew they weren't going to be able to resolve it, they're just like, okay, we're going to leave that for the rising action of movie number two. That's what I'm thinking. I, I like think bite up you might what we can chew for movie number one. There's a good chance they just cold open with that that uh, arena combat that that Fade is mm. a part of. Oh yeah, um, I think that's cool. that would be that's what I was thinking. that would that would be a great cold open. The the man to replace Raban, the savior of Arrakis for the Harkonnens. There's also a lot that they filmed that wasn't in this movie because they weren't sure where they were going to cut it off. Um, oh, I think they settled on the right choice. One thing that's not exactly a spoiler. No, it's not a spoiler. There's, they had a, a scene filmed where Dr. Yue is speaking to Lady Jessica about his wife that I think the movie is kind of worse off for not having. Um, I was really disappointed by the change of his motivation with his wife. Yeah. I think they, they, they didn't really make Dr. Yue that convincing. They didn't get into the imperial conditioning that he was subject to that was supposed to make him un, never going to betray the whatever family he was assigned to. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think one of the weak points of the movie is probably the Dr. Yue storyline. I think all of the political stuff is like a little bit, I don't know, it's hard to compare to the book because the book one section of Dune is like kind of all political thriller stuff all like there's a traitor in the house and there's like a tense dinner scene and oh they didn't even have the dinner scene did they no that's not in either movie which is interesting like a big part of the book yeah also not in either movie which is a big part of the book is the moment where it's revealed to paul that he's been being trained to be a mentor his whole life and i gotta reread this book <laughs> but anyway yeah i thought that like I feel like they were rushing to fit in a good chunk of book two into this movie. And so they kind of like shortchanged a little bit of the tense political stuff. In yeah. one. I read on the IMDb trivia that they had uh, Princess Urlan going to Emma Roberts. And uh, oh. they were unable to, she, her schedule was already filled. So Irulan didn't make the movie. And the Emperor, I think, is a very interesting character. He wasn't in the movie, was he? I was, I was trying to remember. I don't think he was. No. I don't that's, think he was. That's consistent with the book, but not with the Lynch movie. No. The Lynch movie starts out with the Emperor. Well, it starts out with the the Irulan, you know, monologue, and then it's an yeah. Emperor scene. But in the book, he's only in the last two chapters. You hear a lot about him, but you don't see him until the very end. Cough, cough, mm. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Oh, truly? Yeah, Emma Roberts is good casting for that. If I had to guess, I would bet they are doing everything they can right now to get Harry Styles to play Fade in part Ooh, two. If I were, I think he has to be like a pretty competitor to Paul. Like he's like the anti-Paul. You're right. You're right. I don't know. That's just my guess. That wow. would be an interesting choice. I, I, I would. I could see that. Okay, I would say end spoilers here, unless you have anything else to say about that. Wait, do you have any final thoughts? I will say, not about Dune specifically, but more Denny. I personally think that Villain Wave is probably the best sci-fi director of the last 10 years. When did, when did Arrival come out? 2016? Yeah. So starting then, he's been the best sci-fi director since then. And the three movies he's directed have all been adaptations. Or, you know, they, there was a source material. Yeah. My introduction to Villain Wave was... For whatever reason, I saw a trailer for Arrival before it came out, and I was floored by it for some reason. I, I don't remember if the trailer was exceptionally good or I was just dying to read something, but I went and I bought Stories of Your Life and Others by uh -huh. Ted Chiang, and so I read uh -huh. that. Arrival's great. I do not think Story of Your Life is the best book in that short story book. Wow. Um, that, was, that was an awesome surprise thing that I found. And then I watched the movie, and I was floored. I, I feel like it's kind of a broken record with your um, guests on this miniseries. But, yeah, the villain way of movies I've seen are Arrival in Blade Runner 2049. Big thrill. Right. Um, <laughs> and Blade Runner 2049, I 
had no idea what was coming the whole time. As as someone who my father obviously I brought him out like three times now. He's he's a huge influence on my on my um pop culture and he showed me Blade Runner when I was younger. I wasn't really blown away by it. I didn't understand much of it. And then I watched it when I was older and I liked it and, and then twenty forty nine I, I like it better than the original. I think I think I heard somebody else on your podcast say that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Villain Wave, I, I salute him. He's done it once again. <laughs> I think if his goal was to to direct a Dune movie, I think he set himself up very well by adapting two other books slash, you know, mm. pre-existing media I- icons into movies before being like, I'm ready. The people are ready to see my product. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm so glad you guys did this series. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Oh yeah, I've learned a lot. <laughs> but yeah, those are my those are my final thoughts. Dune is great. It's oh. one of my favorite series. I'm more excited for Messiah than anything, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, let's get weird. Let's get weird. I, I oh, I want to say something, but no, no, no. Maybe, <laughs> sure. maybe now that now that you've read Dune, I think you should you should dip your toe in Messiah. It's much shorter, and it, it may be a little weird, but it's not as weird as the others. <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> Yeah, I think the audio book is only nine hours for that one, as opposed to twenty one. Yeah. So I might I might just check it out on on your recommendation. Um, Wade, do you have any final thoughts? Man, I I think that you hit it on the head there, and I've got to say that I also think Denny is like one of the only blockbuster directors who knows how to use a budget. Like mm. one of the only directors making movies on this scale that like knows how to stretch a dollar and make it look really good on screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Christopher McQuarrie with the new Mission Impossible says that too, but it's hard for me to think of anyone else operating on this populist, huge budget scale who makes films that look this good. Oscar Isaac is really good in this, and he's, like, great casting for the book. The premise of Paul in the book is basically, like, what if the two smartest, hottest, most capable, coolest people in the world had a son, and that son had all of their good qualities and none of their bad qualities. Yeah. Uh, And I think that Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson do such a great job of that in this movie. I love just, like, the one shot of them uh, laying in bed where he's like, I should have married you. Uh Uh-huh. So glad they included that. That, like, 20-second scene is, like, 50 pages of angst in the book. And Jenny yeah. found a way to convey bare minimum of what you absolutely need to know about that relationship. They had to have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I love that. Another brief moment I want to mention is Rebecca Ferguson standing outside the door mm-hmm. while Paul is getting the gun Jabbar. It is to me like not Chalamet's acting. I guess we didn't do everyday Chalamet in this episode. Uh, maybe I'll give that to you. I mean, it is like her fear and her like muscle memory of her hand of what happened to mm-hmm. her that like sells the pain in that moment. Oh, I didn't ever yeah. notice that. So I yeah. love that. Um, and I would say like if you like the movie, check out the book. It's very readable for a book from the 60s and like you have just sort of skimmed the surface of what's going on in the book. Emmett, final thoughts, and I'll give Everyday Chalamet to you. Final thoughts. I've been thinking about this movie since it was announced in 2016, like when I was taking that independent study class on the book, or, or like when Beth was and I was taking it alongside her. Like Rick said, that like you hype something up for so long, there's going to be disappointment. I am excited to watch this movie again, knowing what it is to, like, re-experience it on its own terms instead of, like, comparing it to my internal Dune movie, you know? I think it's truly excellent. I compare it to Lord of the Rings because it feels like movies that I can watch again and again and get different things from, or, like, return to a whole world and, like, return to a feeling with it. It makes me think about the parts of the book that aren't in it in ways that are constructive, like I can visualize it in this world. We should keep letting Denis Villeneuve make science fiction movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Everyday Chalamet, um, he was in this movie. He was often very sad or angry in this movie. You know, that's fun. I feel like when I compare, like, I think his best performance is in um, Little Women. It hasn't, like, it hasn't touched that yet. It, with Paul, yeah, Chalamet was there, and, and he, he accomplished the job. But it's it's, like I tried to mention earlier, it's hard to do such a 
like character with that's burdened with purpose, which I think is from Dune. Yeah. Um, because like you know that's kind of been done by so many movies over time. Like Luke Skywalker was right. burdened with being the last of the Jedi and and avenging his father for a time. Mm-hmm. But what something that I hope they get into, and I I I really trust that Denny will find a way to make like very palpable is the the white messiah aspect of so much media from especially mm-hmm. like the early 60s and stuff where it's like this white man from off world comes to this Fremen culture which is heavily heavily influenced by arab culture and he's just going to save them but it's not how it looks i i'm excited to see where they go with that i think chalamet in the second part will have a lot more to work with than in this part where he just kind of Things are happening, and he's realizing that he has a burden, and he has to deal with that, and he has to learn from it. I think Chalamet has a lot to work with coming up, which is really good. Yeah, they have sort of cut it exactly before things get really weird and complicated. (laughs) Yeah. um, I would say, to that point, like, the only time I felt a little about the white savior stuff in the movie is like the ritual combat bit which i know is like from the book but just with it ending the movie i was like now we gotta get hyped up for this little white boy to kill a black man that was like made me feel a little uncomfortable watching it the first time although i don't really know how else they do it but yeah final 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 thoughts I can't believe how little we mentioned Zendaya. Gorgeous human being. Absolutely glad she was in this. (laughs) I feel bad for anyone that walked into this movie blind and saw Zendaya as like the second build character and that she was in it for like five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, again, a lot more to work with in the second movie. Yeah, this movie takes place in a science fiction world where having recurring dreams about Zendaya is rare and not <laughs> the human experience. Yeah, exactly. Am I the Lisa Nalgai? <laughs> it is wild that like the three big shots of every trailer for this movie, the sandworm coming out, Zendaya and Paul doing like the knife salute, which are all in the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alright, go yeah. off, I guess. Before we wrap this up, I've just got a little quiz for you here. This is the Dune quiz this evening. And the theme that ties all these films together is that they are all films that were split into two parts at various times in history. We're going to try and get you to guess them. Uh, it is not a competition. You are working together. All right. Are they all books? They're is I think one on here that is not an adaptation of a book or okay. a book or some other work of art. Specifically uh, two parts? Uh, this first one is specifically two parts. It's about a person who has pissed some people off. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Good, the bad, and the ugly. It is a martial arts film. Uh-huh. Uh, Kill Bill. Yes, that is correct. Oh. Kill Bill. Is that the uh, original one? Yes, that is the one that's original, I believe. The next one is an adaptation of a famous novel. I believe it's a French novel. It was filmed, I think, in the 60s or 70s, and it was originally filmed to be one movie, but then was split into two movies. It's about some jolly Frenchmen with swords who go around swashbuckling thing. The Three Musketeers? Yes, and... Then, predictably, the second film was called The Four Musketeers. That is correct. (laughs) Is that right? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. The next film is a movie about a young woman who leads a revolution. The film is based on the third installment in the series. Oh, Mockingjay? Oh, Mockingjay. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Then this next one is adapted from a famous anime. It was a two-part movie. That both parts came out in 2015. I think they came out months apart from each other. But it's a live-action adaptation. I don't. I think it was an animated film as well. Okay. Um, but it's just an animated theatrical release film of a famous anime, long-running TV series that has to do with giants that uh, roam, roam outside of a walled city. An attack on Titan? 
It is Attack on Titan. Um, I didn't know there were movies. I didn't either until I made this list. Um, (laughs) The next one on this list is essentially like an after-school special about why not to marry your high school boyfriend. Uh, okay. But it was also Ooh. part of a wildly popular film and book franchise. Oh, I know this. Okay, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a little more on it? The premise? The Fifty Shades? Uh, no, but you're close. Uh, the premise? Oh, is it for Twilight? <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, break, is- breaking, breaking Dawn. All right, the next movie on this list, it's the concluding chapter of the story of an emotionally disturbed young man who... Harry Potter? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> emotionally disturbed young man. Um, all right, the, the, the last one on this list is another adaptation from a book. This book is a book about why it's dangerous to have people over for brunch. And like the things that can come from inviting the wrong sort of people over to brunch. Godfather? Uh, no, although great, great guess. Uh, yeah. It was turned into a three-part movie, so the Godfather would have also worked for that as well. And... Oh, The Hobbit. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> all right, y'all have won the game. Woo! That is all we yeah. have for this for this week. Rick, do you have any um, anywhere the people can find your lovely voice or any projects that you're currently working on that you would like to plug? Fortunately, no projects or anything. My name is Ricky Carroll, at Ricky Carroll underscore on Twitter and Instagram, but I don't use those much. You can just find me in the wild um, on Oak yeah. Island or anywhere up the Outer Banks. You can find a spotting of me, maybe in Raleigh, maybe in New York. You never know. You found a wild Rick. It's super <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> Not not really. He's he's really sweet. Although one time he did say we were gonna fight on site. That was the first time I met you. I Emmett was ready was. though. <laughs> Emmett pulled up to my house and he said, "Let's go." <laughs> and the rest is history. Uh, Dude, right. Thanks for being here so much, Ricky. This is good, I right. know we went through a lot to do it, but this oh. is an awesome episode. I, I feel yeah, so much exactly. closer to you guys having struggled to get to this point right here. <laughs> Thank really, you guys really for having me. We have been through the desert on this one. So without a still suit too. Without a still suit. Um up next, dear listener, return in thirty nine weeks when we discuss Jordan Peele's Nope. Otherwise you can return on Friday when we have our Dennyville New ranking. Or next Tuesday when we come out with our Scream episode. Until then, dear listener, remember, stay safe, stay sweet, stay frosty. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.